eyes, bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this incredible privilege of gathering together as family. Thank you for truth. Truth that sets us free, Father. Free from the bondage of old thinking. Bondage that was given to us for adoption from the world. Father, that terrible thinking, thank you for smashing it in our souls. Thank you for never holding back the hammer. Thank you for humbling us and keeping us in a place where we can learn. That's why we're gathered here this morning, Father, to break bread and to learn your word. Father, what a privilege it is to be here this morning. We just pray for those that can't be here, that desire to be here, but for a variety of reasons cannot be. We just go out to them in spirit, Father. We want them to know that we miss them, we love them, and we'd love for you to bring them back to us. Your will be done, of course. We pray also for those that are still lost in this world, Father, that they be humbled in all the right ways, that they might be given the gift of saving faith. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work to make all of this a possibility this morning. We just ask for your blessings on this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, the Lord is our confidence that is where we derive our confidence from. One of the sweetest promises that lead us to that green pasture, if you would. One of the greatest, sweetest promises we can ever know in this life, we can read. Go to Hebrews 13.5. Hebrews 13.5. It's plainly stated in Holy Scripture. Hebrews 13, verse 5. Hebrews 13, verse 5. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you so that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Again, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, so that the result is that we are confident, and we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? This single promise in the Word of God is indeed enough to instill confidence in every believer. And on a morning like this, after you're so close to 
truth that sets you free, you have to ask yourself, how does it ever occur that we're not confident? What is our tendency? It's the temptation to move away from Christ, to, in effect, forget his promises. God's not a God of confusion. That seems to be another attack in the church. People are becoming confused about stuff. If you're confused about stuff, it's not from God. God is not a God of confusion. He wants you to be secure. Like we just sang, safe and secure from all along, right? So this single promise in the Word of God is enough to instill confidence in every believer. But as is the case with all things encouraging, we must learn the Word of God in order to be edified by it. In other words, if you never read that passage because you never take the time to open up your Bible or to come to a class like this and be led to such Holy Scripture, then you don't have it in you. You're not built up by it, and therefore you're missing the promise. You must learn the Word of God in order to be edified by it. Shall I begin this morning once again with our old friend up here on the board? Read your Bible. Read your Bible. Have I ever said that before? Never. When you make this imperative a part of your life, you read pearls of encouragement, things that instill confidence in you. Again, look at it. I will never desert you. Nor will I ever forsake you. So we should be confident to say the Lord is my helper. He just promised me. He's never going to leave me. Who can you say about that in your life besides God? You know, you ready? I'm going to help you out. Here it is. No one. No one can honestly make that 100% promise because we all have a flesh and we're all a bunch of betrayers of ourselves, of the Lord, and of one another. The only one that can make that promise 100% guaranteed is Him. So if we're going to have confidence and security in any one, who should it be in? It should be in Him. The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid What will man do to me? These two verses alone are enough to set a person who's stuck in bondage to fear totally free. I was thinking about that. For some of you in a a practical way, some of you have literally been abandoned by those you love the most. Like literally been abandoned by some of you or by some of those who you love the most, be it a parent, or maybe both parents, or a child, or a best friend. I don't know. Be encouraged, though. Be encouraged. Here's what the Bible has to say about what you can cling to up here on the board. And I want you to focus on that word, impossibility. The impossibility of Christ abandoning his sheep. Do you realize that? It's impossible for him to do it. Impossible. 
Jesus Christ is our great shepherd, Hebrews 13, 20, which means that he is perfect in all he does, including guarding his sheep, never, ever deserting them. Again, the impossibility of Christ abandoning his sheep. Jesus Christ is our great shepherd, which means that he is perfect in all he does, including guarding his sheep, never, ever deserting them. So please be encouraged. Hebrews 13, 5 to 6, compare that to Genesis 28, 15, Deuteronomy 31, 6 to 8, Joshua 1, 5, 1 Chronicles 28, 20, and Lamentations 3 that we'll get back to in a bit. Let's read some additional Holy Scripture for encouragement's sake. Go to Genesis 28, 15. Genesis 28, 15. These are promises, my friends. But again, if you don't read your Bible, how do you receive those promises? How do those promises take root in your soul? Genesis 28, 15. <clears throat> Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. That right there is the very nature of God. If he makes a promise, you know what? He keeps it. Who can you say that about in your life besides him? Again, no one. No one. We've all made promises that we've broken. But not him. When he makes a promise, he keeps it. And it's upon this single truth that our confidence should soar. Go to Deuteronomy 31.6. Deuteronomy 31.6. He says he's going to take care of business. He does. If he says he's going to take care of you. He does. If he says he's going to give you the very best that you can handle at any point in time. He does. If he says he's going to discipline you for your own good. He will. All these things are absolute promises in, in God. And we find them in the, His Word. Deuteronomy 31, verse 6. Be strong and courageous. Deuteronomy 31, verse 6. <clears throat> be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or tremble at them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Then Moses called to Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people into the land which the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall give it to them as an inheritance. The Lord is the one who goes ahead of you he will be with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Moses was basically a puppet, right? How many times I keep telling you, there is absolutely nothing special about a mouthpiece, including myself. If we're not ripping off the Word of God, we are not doing our job. 
The whole thing's a ripoff. If we're not doing it, though, we're not doing our job. So when you read that, it's beautiful. You see an obedient person bringing glory to God, conveying God's word to the people. How about Joshua 1.5? Go there. Joshua 1.5. That's why often I'm sure I can speak for every other ordained by God shepherd that's ever lived. Our prayer is always the same. Just don't let me screw it up. Honestly. Put the words in my mouth and guard me from messing it up. That's as good as it gets for a real shepherd. Joshua 1.5 No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. Do you see the pattern up here on the board again? The impossibility of Christ abandoning his sheep. Jesus Christ is our great shepherd, which means that he is perfect in all he does, including guarding his sheep, never ever deserting them. Be encouraged. One more verse before we get into a little review of Wednesday's message. Go to First Chronicles 28, verse 20. First Chronicles 28, verse 20. First Chronicles 28, verse 20. Then David said to his son Solomon, you know both of these characters at this point, be strong and courageous and act. Do not fear nor be dismayed. For the Lord God, my God, is with you. He will not fail you nor forsake you until all the work for the service of the house of the Lord is finished. Let me show you now why we have a God-given right to cling to this with all our heart, all our soul, and all our might. Why are we able to cling to His promises? You might say, I just can't conjure it up. It just seems so academic. And it sort of is when you hear a promise just clearly stated like that. Well, of course he's going to say that. He's God. You have that weird conversation in your soul, right? Like, okay, I get it. I get it. But, you know, I'm not feeling it yet. I get it. Not, there's, there's no glue yet in my soul. I'm going to use a little theology to prove why, to show you why you can cling to his promises with everything you've got. It's really easy, by the way, up here on the board. He will not fail you. We just saw that in Joshua 1.5, 1 Chronicles 28.20. 1 John 4.16 says something very simple. God is love. Not he has love, he is love. He's the very originator of it, the manifestation of it. He is the owner, the author, the keeper of love. 
etch that in your soul. 1 Corinthians 13, 8, love never fails. <laughs> never. Love never fails. It's that simple. Not, that's not really hard theology, is it? Is it any less theology than if I started to teach you on propitiation? No. Matter of fact, some of you may never need to know about propitiation other than what it really means, but I don't care if you can spell it or even remember it tomorrow. But I want you to remember this. God wants you to know this. This is why his promises are true. Because he is love, and love never fails. And out of love, he gives you these promises to build you up, just like a father builds up his children. So, the final say on everything good in this world is love. And I'm not even waxing poetic here. I'm being 100% theological. That's theology up there. That's theology proper. Two, three-word statements. And you've got everything you need to know. <laughs> there are other proof points I could give you in theology, but if you know that right there, then you know the pinnacle of it. And that's all you really need to know about God and His promises. So it really is, it's not just magnanimous, it's 100% theological, the way it's displayed before you. So, are we allowed to be emotional about such a statement? You bet, I'm about ready to blow out right now. I'm holding back because it's not fair to you. But are we allowed to be emotional about that? Or that the final say in everything good in this world is love? Should there be some kind of emotional response? You bet. Our emotions soar when the Spirit inspires this kind of thinking in us. And that's a beautiful thing because it is a godly response to, the, to His own nature. The godly response by us to the nature of God. Love really is that grand. We may depend on the whew, promises of God. I apologize. We may depend on the promises of God if for no other reason. Whew. I pinch myself. This is what I do at the dentist when they give me shots. I stick my forefinger nail into my thumbnail. And it takes the pain. My, you know what I'm saying? That's what I'm doing up here. I'm like, Distraction. So, we may depend on the promises of God if for no other reason than because we know, say it with me, we what? We know He loves us. And love never fails. Ever. Not once, not ever in, in the history of anything has love ever failed. 
And if you say, well, I've known a love that's failed, this person or that, that's because it wasn't pure. That's why it failed. But this love never fails. God is love, and love never fails. So He will never fail you. Okay, getting back to our previous point. <clears throat> the impossibility of Christ abandoning His sheep. Do you understand the glue? Just in the title? What we just read. He's not going to abandon you because He loves you. With a love that you can't even comprehend. Outside of Him, you've never given it and you've never experienced it. At least not wholly. The impossibility of Christ abandoning his sheep is rooted in love. Because love never fails. And he has a special love for his own. Jesus Christ is our great shepherd, which means that he is perfect in all he does. Even his love, especially his love, including then guarding his sheep, never ever deserting them. Some of you can relate. I mean, if you're a uh, and the only example that comes to mind right away is if, is if, if you're a parent. You say, I, I can never abandon my children like that. I may have to, you know, discipline them or leave them alone for a while and let them wallow in their so self-misery so that they might be, become repentant or humbled by it, etc. But that's never leaving them. Your heart never leaves them. Well, imagine if you had a pure heart. What is that like? What's the, what's the tenacity of that thing? It's unerring. It's absolute. So it's impossible for him to abandon us. Some of you are saying, thank God, because everybody else I've ever loved who said they loved me in this world has abandoned me at some point. Every single one of them. And so I'm insecure. But that's just your flesh taking advantage of you. I'm trying to tell you that that kind of love doesn't exist when it really does. I'm trying to tell you that since that love doesn't really exist, you can't believe in any promises you hear, even the ones that you read in the Bible. So be encouraged. That takes us back. To the good work we did on Wednesday on Lamentations 3. Go to Lamentation 3.1. We're going to read quickly about the writer's lament. Lamentations 3.1. While you're doing that, I'm going to... Hey, can you turn my... Okay, I'm good. People online had to look at the, the shiny head, my shiny dome. Like, turn it off! Limitations 3.1 I am the man who has seen affliction because of the rod of his wrath. He has driven me and made me walk in darkness and not in light. Surely against me he has turned his hand repeatedly all the day. He has caused my flesh and my skin to waste away. He has broken my bones. Lamentations 3.5 
He has besieged and encompassed me with bitterness and hardship. In dark places he, had made, he has made me dwell, like those who have long been dead. He has walled me in so that I cannot go out. He has made my chain heavy. Even when I cry out and call for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with hewn stone. He has made my paths crooked. And then he continues on with more lamenting. Let's jump to verse 17. You get the point at this juncture. Look at the result of that being pressed down that way. And some of you can relate. My soul has been rejected from peace. I have forgotten happiness. So I say, my strength has perished, and so has my hope from the Lord. Ouch. That is an awful place to be experientially. My hope from the Lord. My strength is perished, and so has my hope. What an awful place to be. This sounds like another case in the Bible. There are uh, quite a few. Another case of serious depression, doesn't it? Yeah. At this time, it's most likely Jeremiah uh, who was writing it. Uh, we don't know 100%, but most theologians believe that it was Jeremiah. Again, my soul has been rejected from peace, verse 17. I have forgotten happiness. So I say my strength has perished, and so has my hope from the Lord. Again, doesn't this just sound even maybe like an ample definition for depression? Now, conversely, we have encouragement up here on the board. Elsewhere in Scripture, Psalm 31, 24. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who hope in the Lord. Psalm 71, 5. For you are my hope, O Lord God. You are my confidence from my youth. Psalm 130, verse 5. I wait for the Lord. My soul does wait. And in His word do I hope. Hope is a terrible thing to lose. What leaves a person more depressed than that? At least when you're low and you have hope, you know that there's a better day. And on that premise alone, you're lifted. But what happens when you're low and that hope is gone? What is left? What is left if there's no hope? Hope's a terrible thing to lose. As believers, strictly speaking, it's never actually warranted. Think about what we just read about Jesus Christ, the impossibility of Him ever abandoning us. It's impossible. So we, it's never really warranted, but it happens. It happens. So concentrate. I need you to really concentrate here, up here on the board. How we lose hope. We lose hope when we confess to our enemies what isn't true about ourselves. 
that we have something like we, have, we don't have rights to the promises of God. For starters. We lose hope when we confess to our enemies what isn't true about ourselves. Remember, confess just means to say the same thing. We lose hope when we confess to our enemies what isn't true about ourselves. The kingdom of darkness lies and tells us that the Lord can and will desert us unless, and you, you can fill in the blank with some, whatever fear tactic seems to work on you. Whatever fear tactic seems to work on you, that is precisely what the kingdom of darkness will use. It's, one of the, it's, it's, it's behind what I started off with in the announcements this morning about being pulled away, being distracted by other individuals. They are trying to take you away from what is actually good in your life. So this is how we lose hope. This is how we become confused and disabled and crippled and all that stuff. And we get low and depressed. We say, what's going on? This is how it happens. We begin to confess, to say the same things to our enemies. What isn't true about ourselves? Again, remember, when I use the word confession, by definition, it just means to say the same thing. In other words, you begin to agree with them about you. But the Word of God says, for the believer, we're not appraised by anyone, only Him. So why would you take the appraisal of anyone but the one who has 100% pure love for you? It may hurt sometimes because they might tell you the truth. But that's not the point. We shouldn't be saying the same thing about someone whose love is impure. Someone's appraisal of us. Only the Lord's opinion of us matters. So, in the case of a believer, we have two voices to listen to. One from God and one from our enemies. Satan, the kingdom of darkness world, the flesh, etc. Two voices, one from God and one from our enemies. This is precisely why it's so critically important that we do as the Spirit demands. You ready? I don't think you've seen this yet, but... How strong is that? How loud is that voice if you don't read your Bible? Most of you go out in, in life and talk to, you know, tens, maybe if you're a busy person, if you're in a public type setting, maybe even hundreds of people in a day. Think of all the words that are exchanged. Okay, so that's that one voice. And then you have the Word of God, which is the, the, the pure voice of love. And you don't open up the Word of God. And you don't read your Bible. What do you think is going to happen to your sense of confidence, your sense of hope? What do you think is going to happen? And then when that happens, do you think that the kingdom of darkness is kind enough to leave you alone? Oh, they're already kind of down and pathetic. I'll leave them alone. They go, ding, 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 it's the dinner time. It's time to rally the troops. This one's on their way out. Let's pounce on them. 
There is this, there's no scruples. Satan doesn't have scruples. When you're down, that's when they go after you. But this protects you. This garrisons your heart. Here's an analogy for you. You go into work one day and your boss says, make the right decision and you'll get a promotion. And then he or she walks away, leaving you scratching your head. And you wonder how to satisfy your boss's request, because obviously you want the promotion. Your coworker, who happens to be vying for the same promotion, overhears the conversation and says, Here's what you need to do. Instead of stepping back and consulting the employee's manual, like a Berean might, you take the advice of your coworker. And then the following week, your boss announces the promotion of your coworker. The moral? Go to the source for your knowledge. Never go to your enemies. Go to the source for your knowledge, not your enemies. Go to the source. Not people who don't read their Bibles, who reject the truth, who don't really like the truth. Not all of it anyways. Read your Bibles. Here's a question we need to ask ourselves. How do we confess our lives before the holy God of the universe if we have no idea of his standards? Remember, the, by definition, confession means to say the same thing. Okay? Well, what if, there's no, what if there's no thing in the sentence? Say the what? Same thing. What's the implication? That the same thing exists in the first place for you to be comparative to. Do you understand? For you to confess, to say the same thing about. Does that make sense? See, that's the problem. Most Christians I know say the same thing, and the thing is actually what they've derived from their knowledge of the world. They say the same thing as the enemies of Christ are saying about them. You don't measure up. Anybody read the blog? You don't measure up. Because your heroes, you'll never be like your heroes. You will never measure up. Satan's got, got you by the nose in that situation. Just leads you around. Now, this is like easy work. As long as they don't read their Bible and are set free by the truth, I can just lead them around. And they'll just keep confessing what the world tells them about themselves, which, is what they're, which is, means they're pathetic and worthless and just need to get on, back on that treadmill and keep trying harder the next day and the next day and the next day. So the question again is, how do we confess our lives before the holy God of the universe if we have no idea of his standards? How do you say the same thing if the, the thing isn't present? Same as what? But yet we're called to confess our entire lives before the holy God of the universe. How do we claim righteousness if we're ignorant of its originator? How do we claim righteousness 
if we're ignorant of its originator. How do we, quote, say the same thing as God concerning our lives if we are void of any basis of comparison? As the Spirit ended on Wednesday, we are to confess our whole lives before God. Our whole lives. Not just line-itemized sins. See, when you, have, when you have confession right in your soul, you understand that it really is, there's not, a, there's not a positive or a negative to it by definition. It literally means to say the same thing. Now, if you're convicted, and God's saying, well, that's fantastic. I love how my spirit has been sanctifying you, empowering you to walk and be filled with Him. I love that thing. And you're built up and encouraged. And you say, me too. Me too. This is amazing. I love how my word was able to lift you up. Me too. It's been awesome. I've been delivered. Is that good or bad? That's good, right? That's confession. That literally is no less confession than when you say, God says, oh, and by the way, <laughs> this thing over here. This is not good. You've been lying, you've been cheating, you've been whatever it is you're doing. I know. I agree. I agree. That's no less confession than this one. They're the same. Because confession literally just means to say the same thing. And so what the Spirit's been telling us is say the same thing about all of you. Don't play that religious game that's so popular, especially in this area, where you just confess sins. And they're all line-itemed in little pretty boxes that you can kind of wrap up and keep under control. And it keeps the, all the space in between in your life out of the picture, out from under the scrutiny of the Word of God. Don't play that game. That's what he's saying. He's saying, I want you to confess all of you. I want you to say the same thing. And you say, but I don't know where to begin. See? This is where you begin. You have to start somewhere. Read your Bible. God's so beautiful and so perfect and so loving, it's incredible. He says, I just want you to, I just want you to experience what I know about you. I just want you to know the truth. Because what is it? Truth shall what? Okay, I just want you to know the truth. The good, the bad, or the ugly. It doesn't matter. We'll work on it after we figure it out. But I need you to come to the table, not in parts. Not in bits and pieces, because you're trying to control this relationship. Not like you do with your other relationships. You know how it is. You know, so, some of you go into relationships living lies. I don't want you to do that with me. It's bad enough you do it with other people. I don't want you to do that with me. Freedom is in honesty. Freedom is in humility. Freedom is in confessing the same thing as I do about you. Not your little religion. 
And just so you know, if I see something good, I'm going to let you know that too. Here's some additional food for thought on this up here in the wood. Living for Christ. We will have pockets of failure. However, those pockets ought never be construed as budget, quote unquote, or quotas. I want you to don't even read anymore. Don't look at it. Don't look at it. Pat, stop looking at it. I can see it. She's like, I'm looking at you. You're in the same line. She's like, oh. Really, she doesn't care that much. I just made that whole thing up. You know, the fact that we fail, and the Word of God says, I, I will have mercy on you when you fail, does not mean that you've been given a budget. Does that make sense? You say, oh, you mean as long as I'm living for the most part, then I have a little side budget of sin? Like I have a little budget? To, <laughs> well, I'm 90% good today, so I have a budget of 10% that I can live like hell. I think I'm going to get drunk tonight. It's not really drunk when it has a long stem and purple fluid in it. Ladies, it's not really, you know, it's not really dissipation, it's wine. Do not get drunk with what? Oh, ladies! You don't get, that's not a budgetary line item. You don't say, I worked hard all day, I got to tip more than a few back because I've earned my little budget here. Do you understand? That's complete wrong thinking. Complete fleshly thinking. All right. So we all have pockets of failure. This we know. However, those pockets ought never be construed as budget or quotas. If we pervert grace, we turn it into something like, well, since God knows I'm going to sin about 10% of the time, and that's being nice to yourself. But I'm just giving you an example. I have a 10% budget available to me. He already knows. He's already conceded it. I know you're going to sin, so why don't we just budget 10% out? And we'll just go with that and we'll see what happens. What do you think about that attitude? You want to know what the real budget for sin is? Zero. Zero. That's the budget God gives us for sinning. Zero. <laughs> uh, don't believe me? All right, let's go to 1 Peter 1.13. Your budget or your quota for sinning is zero. Zilch. Nothing. You don't go in there with some budgetary constraint. Well, he only gave me 11%, so that means I only have 89% of goodness in me today, but I got 11% of sinning available to me. And this carryover like uh, Verizon cell phones month to month. So last month I was so good, I get 18% I get of sinning this month available to me because I didn't meet my quota last month. You think I'm kidding you? You don't think people think like that? You don't think you think like that? You don't think you have a little quota on the side? You're gross. I love you, but you're gross. I'm gross. Oh, I had a, such a good week. I'm just going to like... Anyway, you get the point. Your budget is zero. That's how you ought to think about your budget for sinning. It is zero. 1 Peter 
Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lust which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Does it say 90% of your behavior? No, seriously, does it? Does it say you have a 10% quota to be unholy and disobedient? Say that should be, a, you've got a budgetary line item of 10% for sinning? No, I don't think so. It says all your behavior. And it doesn't just say all your thinking and all your ch flapping your gums. What does it say? All your what? I can't read it. Oh, all your behavior. Oh. Oh, darn it. So that's all of you, isn't it? You see? All of you. I want you to confess all of you to me. All of your behavior. Because it is written, you ready? You shall be holy, for I am holy. So here we have the mandate on Christian living. Be holy. How holy exactly? What should be our mindset? How holy is holy? When he says, be holy. Well, the answer is after the comma. For I am holy. Oh. The standard of holiness, you ready? We're the ones reading the Bible, right? We want to confess the same thing, right? The standard of holiness is God. The standard of holiness is God. Which means there is zero budget. And I'm not, I'm not, listen, I'm not trying to come down on you. I'm trying to, this is freedom. This is last frontier stuff. This is rubber hits the road. There's zero budget for sinning because God never wants to sin. If God is the standard, and he says, be holy, because I'm holy, same holiness in view, what's your budget of sin then? Zero. In other words, we need to share the same attitude about sin as God does. We want none of it in our lives. We want none of it in our lives. To budget 10% means that you've premeditated 10%. It means you effectively want to have 10% in your life. Your mind is already cockeyed on the subject. And that thinking alone is what gets you in trouble. It's what keeps you in bondage when you're supposed to be set free. Do the math. No one's more free than God. And he has how much sin? Zero. So, in other words, the less sin, the more freedom. There you go. If you want to be freer, then assume zero as a budget for sinning. I'm not being religious either. I hope you understand what I'm trying to get at. The attitude. We will have pockets of failure. However, those pockets ought never be construed as budget or quotas. If we pervert grace, we turn it into, well, since God knows I'm going to sin, about 10% of the time, you can plug in a number. I was being very generous there. 
I have a 10% budget available to me. The budget quota for sinning is zero. So, if we play this evil game, we remain in bondage. If we play that evil game, you know, I have a line item budget line item for sinning. You remain in bondage. We are commanded to agree with God about righteousness. We are commanded to confess, in other words. We are commanded to agree with God about righteousness. And as a byproduct of that same confession, we are commanded to agree with God about sin, that which is unrighteous. In other words, if you say, I get righteousness, therefore I understand that that's not righteous. If I know the one, then I know the thing that's not the one. So if I agree with you about righteousness, then I immediately understand what unrighteousness is because I have the standard. Up here on the board, why confession is so important. The primary reason for confession isn't persistent condemnation. I'm not trying to weigh you down. Please. This is, this, this is total freedom coming from this pulpit right now. Total freedom. Because you know and I know some of you have budget line items for sin each day. Or maybe you say, I don't do it every day. I save it up for one, once a month. I only do it on my birthdays. I only do it on my birthdays and then my six month, you know, halfway between. I only do it certain times of the year. Then I basically just decimate my body or my soul. Because, you know, I have a budget line item for that thing. That's horrible, horrible thinking. Awful thinking. Learn to understand that God says, be holy because I'm holy, and therefore your budget for sin is zero. Doesn't mean you're not going to sin. That's not the point. Your budget for sin for the day is zero. That's your starting point. The primary reason for confession isn't persistent condemnation. Rather, it is the first step towards deliverance. I hope you see it. Just saying the same thing as God is deliverance. Salvation proper is our grandest example of this through the idea of repentance, even. All right, I'm almost out of time because we've got to do communion service. With that thought in mind, let's, just, let's get back real quick to Lamentations 3.17. Lamentations 3.17. I hope you see what the Spirit's saying this morning. Um, your, your deliverance depends on it. <clears throat> All right. Lamentations 3.17. My soul has been rejected from peace. I have forgotten happiness, so I say. My strength is perished, and so has my hope from the Lord. That is a tragic loss of confidence in the Lord. It's a tragic loss of confidence in the Lord. The Spirit's response this morning has been very simple. Read your Bible so that He personally can bring into remembrance what you have read. Look at verse 19. 
remember, and he's saying this almost as a statement out to the Lord, included in the presence of the Lord himself. Remember, Lord, remember with me now. Remember my affliction and my wandering, the wormwood and bitterness. Surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. This I recall to my mind. Therefore, I have hope. Right after that, you see a turnaround, right? The complete idea here is that there's something critical that needs to be brought to the forefront for the sake of deliverance up here on the board. Remember, remembers, recall. Lamentations 3, 19 and 21 is a wonderful reminder of our access to God's grace. We haven't been called to bondage, but rather to freedom. That's Galatians 5, 13. The temptation is to allow the flesh to dominate us with guilt and condemnation. God is opposed to this. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. I'll give you that reference. Sorry about the eye chart. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 in the Amplified. No temptation, regardless of its source, has overtaken or enticed you. That is not common to human experience. Nor is any temptation unusual or beyond human resistance. But God is faithful to his word. He is compassionate and trustworthy. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability to resist. But along with the temptation he has in the past and is now and will always provide the way out as well so that you will be able to endure it without yielding and will overcome temptation even with joy. With joy. So concentrate on that. Notice that this deliverance that 1 Corinthians 10.13 refers to is from temptation. From the temptation itself. Hence the point, our previous point up here on the board. The temptation is to allow the flesh to dominate us with guilt and condemnation. And God is opposed to this. God is opposed to this. The temptation on the table is to allow ourselves to be dominated by the flesh, giving it control as it leads us back into bondage experientially. In other words, you start buying the lie. You start, as we started this morning, confessing to your enemy the lies about yourself. Because, you know, you sinned. Hey, you know, the ball guy just said this morning, you're supposed to have zero budget for sin, and there you did it again. You're never going to do that. You, you don't even deserve the mercy of God. Wrong, wrong, wrong. Just another perversion. Just another temptation to forget the promises of God. And if you do that thing, if you buy that lie, you give control back to the flesh, experientially. The key word in our message, of course, is remembrance up here on the board. John 14, 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you, my word. Again, we're just going to finish up here. Go to verse 19. Remember my affliction and my wandering, the wormwood and bitterness. Surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. This I recall to mind. Therefore I have hope. 
Here we go. The Lord's loving kindness, kindnesses indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I have what? Hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. It is good that he waits silently for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he should bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone and be silent since he has laid it on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. Perhaps there is hope. Let him give his cheek to the smiter. Let him be filled with reproach. For the Lord will not reject forever. For if he causes grief, then he will have compassion according to his abundant loving kindness. This, my friends, is why we read our Bibles thoroughly. This is why we read our Bibles. The Word of God can and will be used as an instrument for your deliverance from the temptation to wallow in something as heinous and ungodly and even theologically unwarranted as self-pity and self-condemnation. The key to deliverance then, and this is where I'll end, the key to deliverance depends on one particular activity, confession. Saying the same thing about your life as God does. That is the starting point. Confession, saying the same thing. As the Spirit taught us this morning, to say the same thing, you have to have the thing. To have the thing, you have to read your Bible. Makes sense, right? God will never leave us or forsake us. Why? Because He is love, and love never what? Fails. Amen? All right, good place to stop. Let's get ready for communion service, gentlemen.
It's at this time that we're celebrating our great shepherd. It's impossible for, for him to leave us. We think about him and his, the price he paid for us. And that to sum it all up, love hung on a cross. That is what we are remembering here this morning. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me, in remembrance of his person. Let's eat the bread. In the same way he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, in remembrance of his work. Let's drink the cup. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us this opportunity to come before you in humility. Thank you for giving us truth that sets us free, Father. Thank you for loving us and proving to us that your love never dies. Being the author of it, as well as the author and perfecter of our faith, Father, thank you so much for sending your Son as the manifestation of such things. Thank you for giving us this love to cling to forever and ever because it really does give us hope, Father. Hope in a way that's impossible for those that aren't members of your family. What a privilege this is, Father. May we never become familiar with any of it. We just ask for your blessings as we take all that we've learned back to our homes. Give us the time and the energy and the focus to have it nourished in our souls so that it can bear good fruit to bring glory to you. We just ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen.